Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back. We have a really, really special session for you guys today that has come from you, you all asking us, how come we, did, we donate so much money for research and we still don't have a cure? So we have a panel of our wonderful pharma um, people that are doing so much to find a cure for ocular melanoma for us that have decided to come and join us to talk about how research works. So we're going to start off, Kevin's going to be your moderator, and at the end he'll have a little, uh, have a session on clinical trials, he'll give a clinical trial update. But I would like to introduce our panel. We have Dr. Stephen Katz with Trisalis. We have Lucy Eines, and she is a biologist and also a patient, so she's joining us. And then we have um, Christian Wade, who is with Aura Bioscience, and Johnny John... Johnny John will be joining us from Delcast, and then he'll be weighing in on their recent FDA approval. So I'd like to turn it over to Kevin. Thanks, Melody. Excuse me, one second. Maybe that's Johnny John calling. Nope. <laughs> of all things, he should be here. Well, good morning in Seattle. I'm really glad you're all here. You can't see at home how many people are here, but we're excited that we're all together. And to all you around the world, uh, welcome. Um, so we'll take the next hour and we'll go through what you can see on the first slide here. As Melody described, we want to help you understand how products are developed from their infancy and their discovery uh, all the way through to government approvals and use in uh, patients in the real world. But then the second objective today is to also give you an update from all the recent clinical meetings over about the last 15 months uh, that have in involved uh, clinical trial results uh, at these different meetings. So we're going to talk fast. Uh, we have a lot of dense medical information. What I wanted to tell you, though, is that the slides are going to be available to you, so you don't have to take uh, crazy copious notes. Um, I can email these to you after the meeting, and on the very last slide, you'll see my email address. So just sit back, just try to absorb what we're presenting today, and just listen and see how things go. Um, again, the purpose of all this is to share information with you. Acure Insight doesn't endorse any of the trials or the investigators or the cancer centers or the products, um, but uh, what we want to do is to enable you to have really useful discussions with your ocular and medical oncologists, um, and that's why we want to email the slides to you and make those available to you after the meeting. Um, anytime you see a slide that has our logo in the bottom corner, those are slides that I've developed with Acure Insight, and our colleagues here today in cancer research will have their slides as well, but it won't have our logo, just so you know that, uh, what, you know, where the slides are coming from. Um, and I guess that's about it. Well, let's go to the next slide, please. And I see Dr. John. Come on up here. Johnny? Well, we do have some breaking news, and you may have already seen it about three weeks ago. The uh, FDA approved the second therapy for ocular or uveal melanoma. Uh, this therapy is also approved in other nations around the world. Uh, but the FDA approval was really crucial. And so in the coming months, this therapy will be available uh, through medical oncologists around the United States. It's called the Hepzato Kit, and it's actually a drug delivery system to the liver uh, with a chemotherapy agent called Melphalan. Um, and you'll see on the slide, I'll just read a couple of the fine points as I'll do in throughout the presentation here today, some of the highlights of the uh, results of their phase three trial that was submitted and uh, acknowledged by the FDA. The overall response rate was 36%. And the duration of those responses uh, was for an average of 14 months. And so the disease control rate, actually, which included stable disease, was 74, almost 
And that's really remarkable for patients both in first-line metastatic disease and, and second-line and beyond metastatic disease to have that kind of a, a disease control rate. And importantly, of that disease control rate, the breakdown is as follows. Seven of the patients out of the 91 in the trial, seven, almost 8 percent, had complete response. And uh, 26 or 28, 20, almost 29 percent had partial response and 37 percent uh, achieved stable disease. And importantly, the median overall survival, the actual, I'm sorry, the average uh, 50 percent median survival was just over 19 months. And again, it's a mixture of about almost half and half uh, first-line metastatic patients and those who have had other therapies for metastatic disease before. And Johnny, I just wanted to hand the microphone over to you. I know we didn't practice this, but if you'd like to just say a few words about um, your approval and all of the product and uh, availability of the product and also your plans moving forward. Hopefully yeah. you can see this on the video. Yeah, thank you, Kevin, and uh, good morning to everyone. So, yes, we're very excited to, to be FDA approved now. Some of you have heard of us before and some of you may not have, but we've been developing our therapy for a number of years. We finished a large phase three study and this is what we submitted to the FDA earlier this year, and we've received an approval about two weeks ago. So um, we're preparing for launch, and we have a certain number of centers that are going to be involved in, in uh, as treatment centers. Um, I'm certainly happy to discuss with any of you um, any, any questions about our treatment and how it, how it um, takes place and who, where the centers are. Um, but it is a procedure that takes place, and you do have an overnight stay in the, in the hospital for at least one night. Um, and we can go into the details of that, but um, you know we have some key centers that you're all familiar with that are going to be treatment centers at Moffitt Cancer Center, at Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia, Mayo Clinics, uh, both in Rochester and Jacksonville. Um, we expect Vanderbilt, the Cleveland Clinic, um, Stanford University close by to here. So there's a, there's a number of centers also that are um, interested that uh, we will bring on board. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions, um, as Kevin rightfully pointed out, you could have been previously treated uh, with any therapy and still get our treatment, or you could be um, getting this as first-line therapy. So um, I'm happy to take any questions or go over the data with any of you um, throughout the day. Thank you. And thanks for being here at our meeting. Thank you very much. And congratulations to all the people at Delcath who have worked on this about 20 years. Yeah, about 20 years in development, so here we go. If we could have the next slide, please, and thanks again, Johnny. Okay. Well, let, I'll let our colleagues up here in the panel introduce themselves. Dr. Katz. Thanks, Kevin, and it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, as you heard, I'm Stephen Katz. I'm the Chief Medical Officer of Trace Alice Life Sciences, um, also a surgical oncologist, a cancer surgeon. I still practice and see patients uh, one day a week, and as you'll hear in a bit, our company's focused on uveal melanoma liver metastases uh, because that's, that's a big problem for patients with that disease, and it's something our company's very committed to, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of the early findings with you. Hi, I'm Lucy. For those of you who haven't seen me talk today, um, so I started my PhD at Weill Cornell Medicine two years ago. And last year, last October, I actually was diagnosed with uveal melanoma. Um, and so in the past year, I've been um, working with my lab and getting, and changing my project to actually start up a, a research product project for uveal melanoma um, and seeing you know, what I can do to work on this problem. And I'm Christian Wade, and I'm with Aura Biosciences. Uh, I have a PhD in pharmacology from University of Washington, not too far from here. Uh, lived here for many years, so it's always great to be back. Uh, Aura Biosciences has um, a, a product that we have in clinical trials right now. We're just starting our phase three in uh, very early stage uh, choroidal melanoma, and we will talk about that in just a little bit. All right, well, buckle up and here we go. We're going to go a little fast. The medical terminology is going to be flying all over the place, even out on the internet. So uh, again, you don't have to take copious notes. We'll be happy to send the slides to you, and I'll reveal my email address on the very last slide. So that's the, 
the bait on the hook to get to the last slide. Okay, next slide, please. Well, where does it all begin? Um, so what's needed to actually find cures for ocular melanoma, and it's specifically in our disease? And it, it truly begins with the uh, necessity of finding tissue or cells from patients' tumors in ocular uveal melanoma and interrogating that, understanding what are the mechanisms that are initiating and driving the cancer. Um, and so these tumor or tissue banks exist around the world, and there, is, there are several that are currently housing samples of ocular uveal melanoma cancer cells. The one I'm familiar with and I visited is called the Broad Institute in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. They're working with a nonprofit called Pattern.org, uh, who actually helps with the tumor acquisition. So they're working with surgical oncologists around the United States uh, to ask patients if they would kindly donate some extra tissue or cellular material from the time of their initial biopsy or their operation. Um, and we're also working to help expand uh, the number of cells that are in their tissue bank from other patients so that they can uh, have a look at these cells. There's a picture up here on the screen at the very bottom uh, of the actual area in the Broad Institute where they use robots um, to actually take samples out of the freezer. And the different uh, cancer investigators at Broad Institute in the 13 rare cancers, including ocular melanoma, will put together their questions and hypotheses and ask the robotic machinery, um, actually guided by artificial intelligence paradigms uh, going back years ago, to take a look at the cells, and what you can't see in that picture is an apartment-sized freezer. And it's a thing of beauty to me because it's got about 20,000 samples of pharmaceutical drugs, molecules, frozen away. And these are not only drugs that are on the market for anything from arthritis to cholesterol, but also investigational drugs as well. So the robot goes into the freezer and grabs some of the molecules and tests them against cell lines to test you know, these hypotheses or questions. And that's the very beginning of getting towards clinical trials in people to see if they're hitting cells with these drugs. If you can go to the next slide. And the very beginning is, to, as I mentioned, is to identify the biologic target within the cells and to understand, particularly in uveal melanoma cells, how to disrupt the cancer cell process of um, initiating or starting the cancer process, multiplication of the cells, or what we call pr proliferation and then distant metastases or spread of the cancer cells. A lot is there in what I just said. It's decades of research and probably millions of papers that have been published and abstracts and still evolving very rapidly. And this is all considered basic research. It's at the university level all over the world. It's in cancer discovery laboratories at pharmaceutical companies who have that capability to do this very early basic research and that's to identify a drug, either one that would be designed by the pharmaceutical or the uh, company or the academic university, to actually design a drug to be designed to hit that target and affect the target to try to stop tumor growth and tumor progression. So that's the very beginning of the story. And on the next slide, let's start taking a look what else it takes after that. So it takes a willing by a pharmaceutical company who actually wants to work in a rare disease. And there's a lot of nuance in that, and then there's a lot of risk in that, uh, in a very high unmet need disease. And by unmet needs, we know that means survival's on the line for all of us, um, and not just among patients, but also among our clinicians. They want desperately to help us, and they're part of this whole puzzle. Um, and it also takes an experienced drug development team at each of the companies and also in the universities looking at these targets uh, and a committed budget, and I can't understate that enough. Um, all the drug companies have competition within their companies for other products they're developing, not just this one, perhaps for uveal melanoma, so budget commitment in the long term is also essential. And now here we go, this is the big buckle up. So after all the initial work is done in cell lines, and also early work in animals to test for toxicity before we go into humans, an investigational new drug application is submitted by the, the company, the biopharmaceutical company, to the FDA to allow what's called the phase one trial. The first time a drug goes into humans, very carefully. And the doses are very carefully outlined and um, based on the animal studies. So it's not an intent to harm patients, but to start at a low level of the drug dose and move up 
and also look at the scheduling of the drug, you know, how often it's given. And then after that's all very well defined in phase one, and it goes on into what's called a phase two study to prove safety in patients at a defined dose that's chosen. And also if the drug has signal or is starting to see activity or if it's working in the tumors in real people. And you can actually start to detect efficacy in phase one if you've just confined your phase one study just to uveal melanoma patients. So there, there might be a few opportunities there to look for activity. And then if all that comes to fruition, uh, you can move into phase three where you take the new therapy and you compare it with a standard or existing therapy. And as we know, we only have two therapies right now in uveal melanoma. Um, but this is where the FDA and the other government bodies around the world want to establish a clinical benefit for the patients through science, through very carefully planned and statistically calculated studies to give evidence that the drug's truly going to work and that it's going to be safe in people. And that's called the clinical benefit. And that's entailing the new drug application, a lot of negotiations, as Dr. John just talked about, um, took them quite a long time to get it through the FDA, and then hopefully approval. And the next slide. Um, I got to hurry up on all my slides. There's a lot here and I know I'm reading them. But um, it also uh, means that the biopharmaceutical company has to work with clinicians or doctors. These are our, our medical oncologists, our ocular oncologists at different cancer centers. Um, and they have a lot of experience specifically in patients. And we know this is a rare disease and these are the doctors that are seeing us. So that's why the drug companies turn to these clinical experts. Um, and it goes all the way through the trial of finding uh, patients, putting them in the trial appropriately, measuring uh, everything from efficacy to side effects and reporting that in literature and publishing that eventually. Next slide. And now I'm going to turn it over to Lucy for her presentation. Thanks. Can you hear me? Great, yeah. Just hold it close. Okay. So this does have some sort of animations as I walk through. So guys can just sort of intuit it. <laughs> um, so essentially, when it comes to a, a rare drug like uveal melanoma, there might be a number of drugs out there for cancer that might work for uveal melanoma. But you can't just try every single drug against patients. You know, that would be, could you uh, show up the list or do next slide? Yeah, go maybe two or three more. Yeah, essentially there can be risky side effects when you're just you know, try, testing a new drug, um, and some, oftentimes it doesn't work. And that can be really distressing to patients having these risky side effects um, and, and, and no real efficacy. And also it can be expensive. Um, and we have, you know, for, for a rare disease, we have limited resources. And so that's where basic research can come in to help narrow down the options from that whole array of potential drugs to just one that's a, that's a, mo or a smaller number that there's the most effective and the, and the safest. Um, and here's a quick example of how that can go. So for, we're gonna take the example of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Immune checkpoint inhibitors work fairly well for cutaneous skin melanoma, but they just don't really seem to do anything in uveal melanoma. There's a number of reasons why this may be, but one of them may be that when uh, the cutaneous melanoma is holding up this tag called PDL1. It says, I'm a healthy cell. So when that killer T cell, the main sort of fighting force against cancer, sees this cell, it says, oh, you know what? I think this might be a healthy cell. I'm not going to attack it. It's good to go. Next. But when you use immune checkpoint inhibitors against this molecule, the killer T cell can go, this isn't a healthy cell, let's attack. This thing's been faking it, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm simplifying this next part a little bit, but essentially a, a research paper looked really closely at uveal melanoma cells and they found that actually this, this marker that says, hey, I'm a healthy cell, isn't PDL1 and it's probably this other tag called LAG3. So when they use these immune checkpoint inhibitors that target PDL1, nothing happens. Because it's not holding up this tag saying I'm in a healthy cell called PDL1. It's holding up a completely different tag. 
And it turns out there are, there are immune checkpoint inhibitors against lag three, but we just would never have known to use that. We just thought, okay, all these other ones didn't work. Why would we just, why would we keep trying them? And so that's how basic research is able to identify new potential targets um, and, and narrow down the, the large potential drugs you could use to just the safest and most effective. Um, so yeah, here's, here's a clip from the paper. Um, by, this is from uh, Dr. Harbour's uh, group, if you know him, so next slide. Um, oh, so yeah, so this is, this is going into a clinical trial right now with Dr. Harbour and, and Dr. Jose Lutsky. Um, and so what my research is focusing on is we're using a really, really cutting edge platform called the Cosmix by Nanostring, which is actually based in Seattle. And it's a spatial transcriptomics and, and multi-omics tool that can um, basically get as much information out of the tissue samples that we collect from patients as possible. Next slide. And one more. So this can, basically it's, a, it's the most information you know, we've ever been able to get out of tissue samples before using this, this platform called spatial transcriptomics. You can get immunofluorescence, you can get RNA markers, you can get idea of what cells are in this uh, sample. Next slide. Let's go through, yeah. Sweet, so ultimately what this can tell us in, in greater detail than we've ever had before is what cells are found in the tumor? How are the cells behaving? Are the T cells alert? Are they aware there's something weird going on or are they being fooled? Um, which cells are interacting with each other? How might the immune system be, be being evaded? And most importantly, what could be a potential druggable target? Um, and so that's what my research lab is, is doing right now. Um, next slide. Uh, my, I'm in Dr. Christopher Mason's lab, and this is, uh, you know, just a part of my, my research lab, but really this is a lot of the folks who've been helping me create this project that didn't exist before in my lab and, and use our really awesome resources. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so as I mentioned, we uh, at Aura Biosciences have a very long name uh, for our drug. It's called uh, Belzupacap Serotalacan. So we, uh, we conveniently shortened it to Belsar. Uh, at some point it will, you know, hopefully a phase three and everything goes great and we end up with some really catchy commercial name. But um, currently we're investigating it in a few different studies um, and the one I'll mention a little bit today, I'll go through our mechanism of action. So if you go next slide, um, so it, it really has the potential to, to be the first approved therapy for primary choroidal melanoma. Um, again, we just started phase three. Um, I'm sure you could all guess, but not all of our sites start on the first day. We've got a few open and we're continuing to, to really push to get more sites open so we could get more people treated. Um, we've studied this drug in a couple different types of um, uh, treatment methodologies. So, we're, we've started giving it intravitreally, so just right um, into the vitreous, and then found after that that and actually a, a better way to give it might be suprachoroidally. Um, so it's again, it's injecting right in that middle layer of the eye. We get higher concentrations back at the tumor uh, and a, a better, better safety efficacy profile for the drug. So we've decided to go on for that for our phase three study. Um, and then our drug is really cool because it's, uh, it's kind of, a, it's a, it's a hollowed out uh, virus that we've then attached some light sensitive dye to the outside of. That light sensitive dye doesn't do anything on its own. It can hang out and just sit there and nothing happens. But when we activate it with a certain uh, wavelength of light, then we get uh, the, the drug activated. So we can activate it only in a very specific part right around the tumor uh, in the back of your eye. Uh, so you get very good local tumor control. Uh, one of the endpoints of our study is also going to be pre preservation of vision. So you've seen and heard, you know, from other talks today. Obviously, nucleation is loss of vision in the eye. Radiation does a lot of damage um, uh, longer term. So we're hoping that our treatment is going to give uh, a better long-term preservation of vision for patients. Um, it's obviously no radioactive comorbidities. It's not radiation. It's it's none of that. Um, and we really want to look at, uh, hopefully we can treat very early in our phase three, we're looking at very, very small tumors right now. We're hoping that with early treatment, we can reduce the risk of metastases. Um, and 
we're all in this to make people's lives better. That's the point of doing it, right? So we hope that this therapy is going to end up uh, getting approved and, and result in an improvement um, in people's you know, quality and, and duration of life. Uh, next slide. There you go. Thank you. Well, you've heard a little bit about the promise of immunotherapy and the importance of drug delivery, so you've set me up perfectly. It's almost as if it was planned, Kevin. Yeah. It was planned. <laughs> and so Traisalis is focused on a specific aspect of the disease, which is liver metastases. So when patients have metastatic uveal melanoma, meaning when it's spread from the eye to another part of the body, the liver is unfortunately the most common site of spread, actually in 90% of stage four uveal patients, the liver is involved. And this presents two very challenging problems for patients and for companies developing therapies for uveal melanoma patients. One, the immune system is already having trouble responding to uveal melanoma cells. You heard that from Lucy. This actually gets worse in the liver because our livers are trained to be immunologically silent. Now this is actually a good thing for daily existence because everything we eat passes from our guts through our liver. And so you can imagine how many things we eat that our immune systems have never seen. And so we don't want our immune systems in the liver reacting in an exuberant fashion to everything that passes through. So while this helps with breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's actually a big problem for patients with cancer that's spread to the liver. And it also makes it very hard for patients to respond to immunotherapy, even beyond what Lucy already told you. And drug delivery is another significant problem. And Delcath has pioneered uh, incredible work in that space. When you give a drug into a vein or a pill into the mouth, a very small fraction of that drug will actually make it to the liver. And then there's another problem that we almost never think about. The pressure inside of these tumors can be exceedingly high, much higher than the pressure in your arteries generated by your heart. And so that's what Trisalis is focused on, is developing a drug, an immunotherapy drug, that can hopefully improve the ability of patients to respond to drugs like checkpoint inhibitors and a delivery technology that overcomes that pressure barrier. Next slide. Some disclaimers, because we're now a public company. And next slide, please. And so this is the delivery technology. It's a catheter system used by interventional radiologists. It's an outpatient procedure. It's placed into the artery in the groin or an artery in the arm. And then it's placed from that point up into the artery feeding the liver so that the drug, in this case called SD101, an immunotherapy drug that you'll hear more about in a moment, can be delivered specifically to that organ. And so we're able to target the tumors in the liver in addition to immune cells throughout the organ. Because when you think about what we're doing with our drug, we're actually not targeting the cancer cells at all. We're targeting immune cells that aren't able to respond to other treatments like checkpoint inhibitors. So we actually want our drug to not only get into the uveal melanoma metastases, but also throughout the organ. And so that's what this delivery technology is designed to do. You can see this little valve on the catheter. That's the white structure going into the artery. This valve in real life in patients is opening and closing in sync with the patient's heart. So with every, heart, with every heartbeat, it closes, and then it opens again. And this enhances the delivery pressure, and it redirects blood flow into the tumors to improve the delivery of the drug. Next slide. And so this is how the drug works. So SD101 is an immunotherapy drug called a toll-like receptor 9 agonist. It actually mimics bacterial DNA. So it tricks your immune system into thinking that it's a little piece of DNA or genetic material from a bacteria. And it does two things uh, that we think are very important. Uh, we call this dual mechanism of action. One. It stimulates the innate immune system broadly, and the innate immune system are the cells, like natural killer cells that you heard about earlier, uh, that are the quickest to respond to threats like cancer. The other thing that the drug does is it eliminates a cell type that we think is very problematic in the liver called myeloid suppressor cells, or MDSC. These cells accumulate in the liver in patients with uveal liver mets and other cancer types in very large number. They allow the cancer to spread to the liver, they allow the tumors to grow in the liver, and they also prevent patients from responding to drugs like checkpoint inhibitors. And so the ability of our drug to eliminate the cell type, leveraging this delivery approach to get the drug into the tumors at high enough concentration, uh, we think is promising in terms of enabling patients to respond to checkpoint inhibitors at a higher rate more reliably. Next slide, please. 
And so this is an example of this playing out in one of our uveal melanoma patients. So we have a phase one study that's currently open. It's called the PERIO-1 study, and PERIO stands for Pressure-Enabled Regional Immuno-Oncology. So it's capturing what the delivery technology is doing in combination with the drug. So on the left, you're seeing a biopsy from a uveal melanoma liver met patient, and this is exactly what Lucy was describing earlier. Uh, you don't see very many T cells in this tumor. The T cells are being stained in red and green. If there are no T cells in the tumor, the checkpoint inhibitor has nothing to bind to. There's nothing for the checkpoint inhibitor to work with. But after this patient was treated with SD-101 using the delivery technology I showed you, look at this increase in T cell infiltration. So the tumor has gone from what we call immunologically cold, meaning very likely not going to respond to immunotherapy, to immunologically warm or hot, because now there are many T cells in the tumor. The checkpoint inhibitor that our patients are getting in combination with SD-101 now has the opportunity to bind to its target and exert its mechanism of action, reinvigorate and awaken these immune cells so they have the ability now to fight the cancer in the uveal melanoma patients. So that's what we've started to see in our early data. And on the next slide, uh, the other thing that's very nice about the data we've seen so far is the safety profile. So one advantage, one advantage of the delivery approach is that it gives it, we think, a better chance to work by getting enough of the drug into the liver. The other advantage is that you minimize the exposure of the drug to other parts of the body where you may not need it. And so we think this has led to a favorable safety profile. So we have a serious adverse event rate or a serious toxicity rate. That means side effects that require intervention in an intensive care unit or with intravenous medications, a rate of only 5%, and that's what we reported at ASCO in June. In immunotherapy trials, you typically see rates between 20 and 40%. So this early data is very encouraging. It's been well tolerated by the patients, generally outpatient, and with some promising activity. Next slide. And here's the promising activity. Um, so this is called a swim plot. This is very commonly used in cancer trials, and I'll walk you through it so you understand what you're looking at. Each of these yellow bars is a patient in the PERIO-1 study who received SD-101 directly into the liver with that pressure-enabled delivery system, SD-101 given through the device in combination with checkpoint. Now, I want you to focus on the top group of patients who got our lowest dose of SD-101, two milligrams, in combination with nivolumab or Opdivo. The main point I want you to take from this is that the median or average progression-free survival time so that's the average time between the start of the treatment for the patients and the time until the tumors grow or new tumors form was nine months. And we think this is very encouraging because when you look at the literature with the approved therapy and other therapies that are under study, the average is typically between three and a half and seven months. So this nine-month result we think is encouraging, and we look forward to presenting updated findings later in the year. And we're also treating patients who have received many lines of prior therapy. 80% of patients received the prior line, and if you look at that table on the lower right, up to six lines of prior therapy, and these patients are still having favorable outcomes in this early data set from the phase one. And you had quite a few patients there that had extensive prior treatment. Yeah, very heavily pretreated population, Kevin. Yeah, one of the things we're hoping to see as we move into phase two uh, later this year or early next year, typically in phase two, you start to enroll patients a little bit earlier before they've received so many lines of prior therapy. And we're hoping uh, that the results will um, become even more positive at that point. Next slide. I think that might be my last. Yep. Thank you. And we'll have a chance for questions at the end because I got, I've been asking you to buckle up. We'll get ready for this one. Put your helmet visors down. We're sitting on top of a rocket. We're about ready to go for a beautiful ride through clinical trials. Um, let's see. So Dr. Stacy this morning over in the other room from the University of Washington mentioned he hasn't seen results like we're starting to see now in the last, you know, since just only the last couple of years in ocular and uveal melanoma. Um, and I'm going to take you through those results very quickly, very fast, a lot of medical terminology. 
But um, more importantly, I just wanted to show you the meetings that we uh, here in site have attended and we're surveying these presentations, these poster presentations, um, live presentations and what are called abstracts, like a paragraph that are published at these meetings. In the picture, you can see myself and Hannah and um, uh, Melody. We're standing there at the ASCO meeting a few months ago in June and we're standing with the director of patient advocacy from uh, ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, who are keenly interested in patients and patient advocacy. So we thank them as well for their support of organizations like ours. All right, buckle up, here we go, light the rocket. Next slide. Well, just before we begin, a couple definitions. And you've heard these terminologies before, but I wanted to make sure that you can see them. And again, I'll send you the slides if you request them on the very last slide with my email address. Uh, complete response means the disappearance of all target lesions. Um, it's also referred to oftentimes as no evidence of disease. If you look really hard at all the scans, all the laboratory values, making sure that there is truly a complete response. And that's the holy grail of cancer therapy. Um, partial response is the next category, and that's at least a 30% reduction in the size or number of the target lesions. Uh, stable disease is just below that, and that, as it says, it's stable disease. It's neither, it's not enough sufficient shrinkage um, at, with that 30% decrease, or not enough progression or new lesions. And finally, progressive disease is at least a 20% increase in the size or the number of target cancer lesions. But there's also another way to describe efficacy or the effect of cancer therapy, and that's also measuring the time of efficacy. And two of the most predominant measures we'll talk about in the next few slides are called progression-free survival, and that's the time from starting your treatment until the time of the occurrence of progression or death. And the other is also the other holy grail, overall survival, and that's the time from starting treatment or the time that you go on a phase three trial and start treatment to the time of death. So just having those nicknames, you'll hear them come up as I'm gonna read through these very quickly. So go ahead to the next slide. This slide I composed based on the recent reports that we've seen at those meetings that I mentioned to you over the last 15 months. On the top box are 17 therapies for metastatic ocular melanoma. We've not seen this number of therapies being reported ever in this disease. And again, this is just the last 15 months. And the bottom block lists two therapies, uh, Belsar included, uh, of therapies for patients who are newly diagnosed. All these are investigational therapies at this point, um, except I did list um, uh, Tabenefus in here, but that's um, approved only in the first-line setting. It's being investigated in the second-line setting, and we'll talk about some results that are updated from that. Any of these therapies can be um, searched on clinicaltrials.gov to look at their actual clinical trials. So you'll get that in the slides that I can send to you. And the next slide. Okay, here we go, get ready. I think I have about eight slides that are really dense like this and I'll try to just read the uh, top results. I'd actually like to ask Christian to take this one on. Do you have the microphone ready? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. This is on I'll, Belsar. Can I go as fast as you? <laughs> uh, five, four, three, yeah, two, one. Yeah, I was going to say just advance, yeah. Lift off. So we've, I'll just talk about it really briefly. So we have presented data um, on the phase 1B2 study. We're going to continue to present additional data um, later this year at the Macula Society um, uh, just a few months ago. Uh, Dr. Kim presented our uh, phase 2 dose escalation. Um, we had a great, I mean, what we think was a great uh, statistically significant uh, reduction in the tumor growth rate uh, with our three-cycle regimen. We had a 90% rate of preserving visual acuity in patients. Um, again, 20 patients, right? We're not, we're not to thousands of patients yet, but early data looks really promising. Um, our interim analysis demonstrated tumor control between 89 and uh, 100%. Uh, with eight to nine months of follow-up, obviously as time continues to march on, we'll get additional uh, longer-term data on those patients. Most of the adverse events were transient and resolved uh, with no treatment-related serious adverse events and no dose-limiting toxicities. Dose-limiting toxicities means um, in phase two, we're testing increasing doses of the drug, and we never reached a point where we said we're giving too much, that there was something happened that we had to 
um, stop the study or um, stop that treatment arm. So we never reached that point uh, in our phase two. And we had low or no, very minimal uh, ocular inflammation, very little anterior uveitis and no vitritis that we've seen to date. So very good safety profile. We're really excited about it. And on to phase three now. Yeah, the next slide. <laughs> yep, there you go. Great, next slide. <laughs> No, go ahead. You oh, sorry. Oh, yes, I did have the phase three. So this is our yeah. phase three, sorry. Um, so we're randomizing patients in a two to one to two uh, randomization. So we have two treatment arms. We have an 80 microgram arm and a 40 microgram arm. And then we have a sham control arm to compare them against. We're looking for a grand total globally of about 100 patients. Um, we're opening sites both in the U.S. and ex-U.S., so we have about half the sites in the U.S., the other half outside the U.S., um, mostly Europe, um, Northern Europe, um, some sort of further abroad, um, Japan perhaps, uh, Asia, but yeah, mostly, mostly U.S. and Europe. Um, we're looking, our endpoint is going to be both uh, the comparison between the high-dose arm and the sham arm, and the 40-microgram arm we also expect to be uh, therapeutic as well. Our primary endpoint is that time to tumor progression, so can we lengthen the amount of time uh, that it takes for the tumor to grow? And we're also looking at uh, a composite time-to-event analysis and, and the tumor growth rate. Uh, so how, how quickly or how slowly are we, are, is the tumor growing? And there's the, uh, it was asked in the, uh, in the other room what the clinical trial uh, number is, and that's it below. I, I, didn't, I do not have it memorized yet. It is only very recently posted, so there it is for you. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to the next slide. So about a year and a few months ago, in June of 22, we attended the International Society of Ocular Oncology meeting, and the investigators there in Leiden, the Netherlands, at the Medical Center presented very early results from a phase three trial called the CHOPIN trial. And uh, the CHOPIN trial actually is a combination of two immunotherapies, which are ipilimumab and nivolumab, but it was alternating with courses of the Delcaf melphalan system, now approved in the United States. And this trial continues at this point, uh, even though these early results were uh, presented about 15 months ago. Uh, the initial results that were presented at the meeting was one complete among, what was it, nine patients, Johnny? Eight, Eight patients. Eight, sorry, my eye's not focused very well. So uh, one complete response among the eight uh, patients, five partial responses, and two patients experienced stable disease. Uh, this data was further updated just earlier this year in 2023 with the median progression-free survival, meaning that the time the patients were surviving on average was 29.1 months. And these were face first-line metastatic? No, they were, yeah, were first-line Yep, so patients who were receiving treatment for metastatic disease for the first time. Um, and the median duration of response about 27 months. Um, and again, at that update um, about nine months ago, there were no deaths on study. So we'll continue to watch for updates of the study. It's just very interesting, and we should just keep an eye on it, so to speak. And the next slide. I'm going to probably say that a few times. Okay. Um, so now we're going to turn to the ASCO meeting, American Society of Clinical Oncology, always in Chicago for some crazy reason. And it was in June of 2023. Um, at one of the educational sessions, um, one of the colleagues from the Institut Curie in, um, in Paris, who are expert also at treating ocular melanoma, uh, presented an update on um, a drug called IDE-196. Uh, generic name is Darvasert. Oh, I'm sorry, I flipped ahead. My apologies. We attended the American Society of uh, Cancer, Re I'm sorry, the American Association of Cancer Research in April, and the phase two data from Tabenefus or Chemtrek was pre uh, presented. This was an update of patients who were treated with Tabenefus for previously treated metastatic uveal melanoma. And this was a survival update, and the number that was reported was a, an average or a median of 16.8 months. Thanks for pointing that out. Sorry, I was reading off my paper notes. There were also some data presented uh, among uh, a fraction of the 127 patients um, in what's called circulating tumor DNA clearance and was associated with rates of survival at uh, one year and two years that were very favorable. And we'll continue to watch the evolution of those data because those could be helpful in understanding as an early marker of how patients are coming along with their survival. 
Um, among the 94 patients who had the uh, CT DNA data, circulating tumor DNA data, uh, three of those patients were observed to have partial responses after receiving uh, Tavenafos treatment, and 30 patients enjoyed stable disease. So that's very exciting. Um, just wanted to point out that the phase two and the phase three trials for the single therapy of Tavenafos per Kim track are now concluded. Um, so enrollment's finished in those trials. Um, and I did want to mention, too, I have a small correction to make earlier. I said that Tabenefus was approved for first line, but it also is a broader indication for both first line and um, other uh, lines of therapy for metastatic uveal melanoma. Okay, well, let's go on to the next slide. There we go. So now Dr. Uh, Pipro Newman from Institute Curie presented at ASCO on IDE196, uh, and this drug from IDEA as a protein kinase C inhibitor, that's the nickname of the mechanism, and it's combined with a drug called crizotinib, which is a C-MET inhibitor, which is used in uh, cutaneous melanoma. And among the 35 patients who were enrolled in the trial as of the presentation at ASCO uh, that uh, Dr. Pipro Newman reported upon, um, the results showed that 31% of the patients of the, 20, of the 35 had partial response. Uh, there were additional uh, two patients that were unconfirmed yet on their partial response, so that's encouraging. And 46% of the 35 patients had stable disease. And furthermore, on the IDEA website, uh, they also reported in one of their presentations that progression-free survival had been updated to about seven months. Um, so again, very interesting and hopeful news, and we'll continue to follow the progress of this phase two trial. Next slide. Okay. Uh, also at ASCO uh, was a presentation for a drug, uh, and I think I'll turn it over to uh, Dr. Katz, who can uh, describe this abstract better than I can. Thanks, Kevin. I've actually told you uh, about some of the highlights from this already. Uh, this was ST101 given with pressure-enabled drug delivery in combination with nivolumab. So you've heard about the safety profile and the PFS of around nine months. The additional point I'll highlight is the ctDNA data, which you heard about uh, with the Immunocore study. This is emerging as a very important piece of data for uveal melanoma trials, because one of the challenges we face with immunotherapy is assessing response on imaging. Who's had a vaccine? Show of hands. What happens to your shoulder? <laughs> it swells. So it's, well, it's, it's sore because it swells. And what, what happens to a liver tumor when there's an effective immune response? It can swell. So it can actually look bigger on a CT or an MRI scan, and so the radiologist may think it's progressive disease, but it's actually not the cancer growing, it's just swelling from the immune response. And so other early markers like circulating tumor DNA can be very helpful to tell us when patients are actually benefiting potentially from treatment uh, when the imaging may not be reflective of the clinical benefit. So that was one of the other data points that we presented at ASCO is that we had a favorable CT DNA response in about two-thirds of the patients we treated with a complete clearance of around 20%. Um, so we're going to report, as I mentioned, hopefully further data with more follow-up toward the end of the year. Thank you. Okay, next slide. Um, about three more dense slides and then we'll pull in for a landing of our little uh, journey here in clinical trials. So also at the ASCO meeting, a report of a drug called, uh, it, the nickname of the mechanism is a uh, PI3 kinase inhibitor. And this drug uh, is from an Italian company, I think they're Italian, called Ionctura. And so the drug name, I am gonna really botch, I think I'll call it Roganosilib, uh, IOA244, and you can look that up for their clinical trial, which is available only over in Europe at this point. Um, but what was interesting were the results here uh, from their early analysis of their higher dose, uh, call, uh, which was 80 milligram in 18 patients. And there they had, let me just come back to my notes here. Yep. Um, so at the higher dose level, there were 5% partial responses, and 80% of those patients enjoyed stable disease. So that, again, looks very promising and interesting. We'll continue to watch that drug. And the next slide. You may have heard of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes uh, in combination with interleukin-2. This is a tough therapy. A friend of ours just went through it and pulled through, by the way. Um, and it's available not only at MD Anderson, but also at a couple of other university cancer centers around the world. 
Um, without going into a deep explanation of this immune-based therapy um, of T cells, uh, I just want to get right to the results. So the MD Anderson report at ASCO was among nine metastatic uveal melanoma patients, and they had had three lines of prior metastatic therapy, so that's really important to stress. And the best overall response rate that they had was 22% partial response among these nine patients, and a duration of response was 22 months and 16 months, uh, respectively, for the two patients. But more importantly, or also importantly, it was 44% of those patients enjoyed stable disease. Um, so again, another therapy to keep uh, in mind um, as far as the ongoing clinical trials, not just at Anderson, but at other places as well. And the next slide. Really busy slide. Our colleagues are here actually from Repl Moon, and we're, we're grateful that you're here with us here in Seattle. Uh, I'm going to read this. I have to read it literally because it's a really dense slide, but I'm going to try to just read one sentence. Um, this is a very interesting, um, I guess, it, uh, it's actually a conjugate product. It, it's, can you just shout it out to me, the, yeah, the mechanism? Uh, I'll repeat it. Right. So it's an HSV type 1 virus that's actually uh, changed to attack parts of, or to allow the immune system to attack the cancer. Um, okay. Well, thanks very much. And it's actually in combination in this report from ASCO with nivolumab, the, um, the uh, immune-stimulating uh, product or uh, checkpoint inhibitor. And so among the 14 patients that were reported in this uh, trial that could be evaluated, the objective response rate was 28, almost 29%, so four of the 14 patients. Um, they were all partial responses, so that's very exciting. Um, and then uh, the monotherapy arm, so that not with the nivolumab, one of three patients, um, I'm sorry, I'm really, I'm getting a little bit in the weeds here. The, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go on to the disease control rate. The partial response plus the stable disease added together was 57%, and that was um, in combination with nivolumab. Is that right? Okay. There's a lot of data there, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a bit pressed of time, I'm watching the clock, um, and again, I'd be happy to send the slides along to you for your discussions with your oncologist. Um, and uh, there are a number of um, uh, sites, and I guess right now they're in Europe. Could I ask you one other question? Are there going to be sites in the United States? Um, we, are, we are talking with about the Terrific. Okay. Um, next slide. So now this is not a therapy, but this is actually the CASEL uh, prognostic uh, uveal melanoma 15 gene gene expression panel. There was an updated ASCO and an abstract among t almost 3,000 patients uh, looking forward and understanding uh, their survival. And the update was among class one and class two patients uh, with their results from CASEL, uh, seven-year survival outcomes. Uh, the survival rates were almost 80% for patients who had class 1 results and about 32% with class 2 results. Again, those are averages. Um, I'll send you the abstract, but um, those are, again, it's a very long update of these data. Next slide. I've got to wrap up. Um, again, we'll be sending the slides out afterwards if you request them. I'll give you the email in a minute, but uh, here's a list of all the things I could find on clinicaltrials.gov that are included in uveal melanoma trials. So those are all the nicknames of drugs that you can search for and then open up their clinical trials and have discussions with your doctors back home. The next slide. So we started by talking about money. We'll, talk, we'll end the presentation by where does the money go? And so the money that's been contributed to a cure insight over time, Melody informs me that over $400,000 of patient and family money has gone to research grant support. And some examples are in cell line studies, but also in one clinical study of a patch chemotherapy that was given to tumors in the eye. We're also collaborating with another foundation called the Melanoma Research Alliance, a 50-50 uh, grant giving arrangement that we've made. Uh, we're on the grant review committee for uveal melanoma, and we've actually just started with the first award to the University of Utah, $100,000 reward. So we're sharing in that grant 50-50. 
uh, to pursue some new research that could lead very quickly to a clinical trial. And finally, the patient registry, the next slide we talked about yesterday in one of the sessions, but it's the world's first and largest, and we just want to thank the over 780 patients and family members who have contributed to this very important uh, future uses are helping to plan clinical trials and better inform uh, clinical investigators on uh, the patient demographics in uveal melanoma. And the last slide. There's my email address at the bottom. Kevin at acureinsight.org. We'll close up here and we'll try to take some questions afterwards. Thanks. Melody? Okay, Kevin, here I'm going to go with this question because this is what the whole presentation was supposed to be about. I'm going to ask you guys on the panel, how much has it taken you to get your drug to market, to research? So if you guys want to answer that. Oh, you got to come up here. <laughs> As Kevin said, it's very expensive. The research is very expensive in our case. Um, it took many years. We went through a phase one, a phase two, and a global phase three study. So, um, you know, without getting into specifics, I mean, we're talking over $250 million, you know, easily. $250 million just for one FDA-approved drug. Um, so can you can imagine how much more. Dr. Katz, where are you guys at right now? I mean, getting back to one of the other themes, how much time and money. So, you know, the basic science work that led to what we're doing in the clinic now really had been going on for over two decades. So two decades of preclinical work and then into the clinic, you know, it's going to end up somewhere in that range. You know, to get a drug approved, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, that, that goes to taking care of the patients. It goes toward all the regulatory and compliance costs, uh, all the preclinical studies, the translational work we do on biopsies and blood samples. So it's, it's going to be in that range. So it's incredibly expensive, which is why uh, it's so important to have uh, support from societies like this and from investors uh, to help get these studies done for patients. Yeah, I was going to say about the same for us, you know, uh, 15, 20 years of research. Um, and, you know, the, the sad part is a lot of times we get to phase three and everything looks like it's going to be great and you discover something that, you know, a, an unfound toxicity or uh, something somebody wasn't expecting and it, it, it doesn't work. Um, so it, it's not like you can just, you know, put down your, your 250 on the roulette table and hope you're going to hit. Uh, a lot of times it looks good all the way up until it doesn't, um, which is, you know, which is why it's, it's so costly and, and so time consuming. And, and you know, I, I remember from grad school the joke about, you know, the, the reason they call it research is you redo stuff a lot of time. So uh, I spent one entire summer doing the same experiment every day until I finally got it right. So uh, it's just a lot of trial and error. Lucy, how about you're starting a new a new cell line study about yeah, yeah. how much did you need to get that going? So I mean, ultimately, the platform that we're using, Cosmix, is very very cutting edge, and it's about three thousand dollars per run, which is obviously much smaller potatoes compared to the the um, clinical trials. But in terms of research, that's you know, if I want to do ten samples, that's thirty thousand dollars. Uh, for you know, for a, a pretty rare disease, that's that's a lot in in terms of research, and ten is still a really small number of samples um, for for the platform. It's that's you know sort of what we use because it's so expensive, but you know it's it's still kind of weak science in in the grand scheme of things. Where maybe a hundred samples would be you know, tell us you everything you really need to know. So yeah, I mean that it's it's really really expensive stuff. Okay, so here's my last question, then if any of you have a question, you can raise your hand. But my last question is, we know how people can donate to a cure in sight that we can donate to universities. Um, because we're a nonprofit, we can donate only to like nonprofit type entities or uh, a, a trial type research. But we can't donate to Delcath or Trisalus. We, you know, we can't do that because you know, it doesn't work like that. So how do you guys, how, when you guys get to a point where you are getting ready to go to FDA approval and you're, you're going public with your companies, then how do you get the money? Well, I, I have a tin cup that I shake. And <laughs> yeah, a lot of that, yeah. It feels like it sometimes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really communicating, you know, with the investor community. Um, 
you know, really getting the data that you saw today from all these groups and companies, you know, out into the public, presenting in meetings, uh, hopefully getting people excited about the data and what the potential is for these patient populations. Uh, and then when people see promise, uh, you hope that they're willing to invest uh, in a company that's doing something hopeful for a group of patients like uveal melanoma. And you need to get a lot of that support um, to get all of this work done, uh, particularly when you're taking a company public. And how can we do that? I mean, the key, I think, is really to, you know, get the information out there about the promising data and also about open clinical trials so that patients are aware of what options uh, may be available to them, because one of the key challenges with doing a clinical trial is enrollment, um, you know, getting patients to participate. And that's one of the things that I think is most gratifying about doing the work is, you know, seeing what patients are willing to do in terms of participating in these trials, not only getting the treatment, but having biopsies done, which usually doesn't help them directly. When a patient has a biopsy, they're actually committing to doing something to help other patients in the future. So it's one of the beautiful things that we see in clinical trials. So I think the keys are getting the data out there and getting the information about clinical trial options out there to help move programs forward. Yeah, we're in, we're, we are publicly traded, uh, so we're out there. Um, but same thing, a lot of investors, a lot of investment money, and we need patients on our study as well. So if three, four people enroll in this study and it just stays open forever, we'll never get the drug approved, right? If we don't get the 100 patients that we need and are able to run statistics on that number, um, then, then we can't get the drug, you know, go back to the agency and, and have a discussion with them about approval. So that's what we need. We need patients, right? We, we're going to do our part in getting, you know, where we'll advertise and we'll get the word out there as much as we can. Uh, but word of mouth is great also. So, uh, you know, very early stage patients are, are really what we need. And we can talk with you, too, right after the session during the lunch break yeah, if you want absolutely. to grab us. Can we just give a round of applause to our colleagues up here? Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.